Thank you. Good morning. It is my delight to be back with you. Um, I'm grateful that Brian and uh, Pastors Brian and, and David continue to allow me to come back and spend time with you. Frontline means a great deal to us, to our family. Um, where you kind of helped us transition from life one to life 2.0 in a difficult season, and I delight to be able to come back periodically and uh, worship with you. Speaking of life 1.0, it was, <clears throat> it must have been 20 years ago, I uh, was a recent graduate of seminary and still had the aura of omniscience that hovers about you until real life sort of strips it away violently from you. And I remember I was teaching a, uh, some introductory Bible class, the undergrad Bible class. I don't remember what it was, but I was sitting in my very sparse adjunct cubicle office thing, and the door, knock at the door, a young lady from my class, she comes in, sits down across uh, from the desk for me, and, and bursts into tears. And all I could think to myself was, five years. I spent five years in seminary. They taught me how to translate from Greek and Hebrew. They taught me systematic theology and historical theology, philosophical theology. They taught me ethics. Uh, they taught me all of these uh, ecclesiology, you know, how to run a church, all this stuff. Nobody told me there'd be crying 19-year-olds in my office. It's all a waste. Well, she pulled herself together. I couldn't, even, I couldn't even give her a Kleenex. I'm a guy. All I had was a roll of toilet paper that I'd swiped from the bathroom for my hay fever. Well, she finally stumbled her way forward and came out with this. Uh, Professor Grinnell, I don't want to die. <laughs> well, that'll put the heart in you crosswise. But uh, she, she continued on, and it turned out it was something different than I feared. She said, I, um, I know that if I die, I'm a Christian. If I die, I'm going to heaven. I know if Jesus comes back, I'm, I'm going to go be with him. That's the problem. I don't want to go. I had an inkling of the problem now. I'd been there myself. See, it turned out as she told us the rest, told me the rest of her story, that she, she came from a really bad background, a really horrific background, the kind you read about in the newspapers, lots of trauma, Harry Potter living with the Dursleys kinds of trauma. But this, of course, was in the days before anyone knew that Harry Potter was a wizard, so I didn't even have that as an analogy. She uh, had now come to college, was a sophomore, had been there, had new friends, didn't have to go back home new opportunities, a new life. Things were opening up to her. And her words to me, and I quote, if Jesus comes back, I lose it all. Yeah, I've been there. I think lots of Christians have, if we're going to be honest with ourselves. The promise of heaven seems at best and underwhelming offer of things we're not really interested in. Streets of gold. Ugh. Unending hymnology with Jesus. I, honestly, I'd rather have a nice steak from Ruth's Chris. 
I mean, if the alternative is the other place, okay, we're content to go, right? But deep down in our hearts, isn't there, isn't there something in us that would just rather keep the nice parts of what we have now? Even though even the, the best parts of what we have now are an admixture of injustice and evil, they still sound better than the things that were offered in the long run. And I had to reach the conclusion that one of two things has gone wrong within us. Either God really doesn't know what we want or need, or we have greatly misunderstood the divine promises. Speak, Lord, your servant heareth. <laughs> the Apostle Paul suggests that there are three great Christian virtues. Faith, hope, and love. As we come to the end of 2019, looking forward to 2020, I, I wonder if the one we're most tempted to underappreciate is hope. With what eyes do you see the new year coming? Do you look forward with a spirit of hope? Or do you watch what's going on in our world with something more like a kind of a hesitant despair? You know, sort of waiting for whatever it's going to be that's going to push the whole country over into a wonderland-like madness. And that's on the assumption we're not already there. Or maybe in your own private life, the coming year features more uncertainty than confidence. Maybe 2020 arrives more like a threat than a promise. Or maybe even worse, maybe 2020 is, strikes you as nothing more than a dull continuation of the sorrows and the regrets and the losses of 2019. And I wonder, like my student 20 years ago, does Christian hope really offer us anything worth having in this season? Why does Paul make it one of the big three? Why does the Apostle Peter write an entire letter about it to Christians in tough scrapes? As if, as if the Christian's hope was to them something to be longed for. What did they know that we don't? See, when Peter crafted the message of his first epistle, 1 Peter, that's where we're going to spend a good chunk of our time today, he was addressing Christians, possibly Jewish Christians, throughout Asia Minor who were enduring uncertain times just, just like us. Well, not just like us. Theirs tended to be actual persecution. And probably not even the sort of systematic empire-wide persecutions that would come later. It was probably more very intense, uh, spasmodic uh, uh, local persecutions, meaning that Peter is not writing to these Christians who are, are, are dealing with issues like impeachments and Senate trials, God help them. He is writing more to, well, look at the people he actually mentions in the letter, Christian laborers struggling under pagan masters, Christian citizens struggling under pagan magistrates, and Christian wives struggling under idiot husbands. 
Peter's words have less to do with the big overall movings of the empire and more about marriage and family and, and work and civic relationships. But the truth is, the Christian hope of which he speaks is meant to address all of this. I'd like to read to you a somewhat lengthy section of the, uh, of the book in half a dozen verses, but you don't have to follow it all. Just pay attention to the bold parts to get a sense of exactly where is it that Peter wants them to focus their hope? Wherein is the Christian hope directed? This is right at the beginning of the book, verse one, chapter, uh, verse, chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to in obtain an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept, reserved. Where? In heaven. For who? For you, who by God's power are being guarded by faith for a salvation ready to be revealed. When? In the last time. In this, in, in this hope that he's talking about, you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you are distressed by various multicolored trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, which is more precious than gold, that perishes even though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in praise, glory, and honor when? At the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him now, you believe in him and rejoice with joy inexpressible, full of glory, receiving as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. Now you didn't need to follow all of that. But did you see in your mind the thing he continually points them toward? What event is he telling them to hope in? Where is their hope supposed to lie? Yeah, you saw it, right? In a distant future. The revelation of Jesus Christ, a heavenly inheritance. He is saying that Christians, the Christian hope, the sort of hope he is offering to abused, confused, hurting Christians is someday out there in a cloudy beyond, when Jesus comes back, or at best, when you die. Now, if you have walked paths, anything like I've walked in life, you immediately begin to taste something rather foul in your mouth right now. The promises of pie in the sky to be given to us someday... Well, all around us, the suffering goes on without mitigation, seems to smack of a kind of a monastic world flight kind of theology that's really not of much practical value in a world of actual injustices. In fact, the promise of a, a future heaven, a future justice, a future kingdom tends to land on us almost like an insult. For some, even, a repudiation of the church's mission and purpose we've been called to do now. Therein, my friends, lies the scandal of Peter's words. What's the good of telling the hurting, the hungry, the downtrodden that there's hope for them someday in a future world, but not today? 
At best, it's cruel. My friends, there are hungry to feed now, not someday. There are prisoners to be liberated now, not someday. There are injustices to be redressed now, not someday. I've always thought so, and I think so even now. <sighs> but what I have learned in the last few years is that Peter, far from, far from speaking against the activists' vigorous work for justice, he's actually saying, no, he's offering something of far greater importance than I'd ever realized. He's not speaking against vigorous work now, but he's putting his finger rather on an important aspect of the human experience. One I, one I, hadn't, I hadn't fully appreciated until I had done a little hopeless suffering of my own. See, I'm a student of history, and uh, theological history, admittedly, but it has caused me to notice a couple of things about the human condition. I've actually, I've actually reached the conclusion that the act of working against societal evil is really only seriously undertaken by people who, who have reason to believe they can actually succeed in making a change of some kind. You actually have to have a little bit of social power already before resistance even makes sense. I mean, meaning people don't usually protest against evils they have no possibility of changing. I mean, you might as well protest against gravity or growing old. It's going to happen anyway. It's not until people begin to see that change is possible and then they rise, I mean, rise up. What, what, I mean, what's going on in Hong Kong, right? They believe in something. Something's going to happen. Why the Me Too movement now and not before? Because people believe we've, we're at a point where there can be some real systemic redresses, changes, right? You have to actually already have a little bit of it before you can have that kind of hope. If you'd like to see one, I think one of the most dramatic historical examples of this, spend some time, just you can do this online, compare the songs of the civil rights movement from the 1960s with the songs of the pre, of pre-Civil War slavery. A rather shocking thing emerges, a lesson about different kinds of hope. What was the great song of the uh, civil rights movement, right? We shall overcome, right? That's a song of people who believe they've come far enough to now see some real change. Some real liberation is now a possibility. Oh, it's not a guarantee. We may still lose. It may still come to naught. But there's a strong belief that we do not fight in vain. In fact, it reflects a hope. A hope located in the not-too-distant future, right? That we will see changes soon. Our children and our children's children will enjoy better than we had. But now lay that refrain next to the songs of African prisoners written in the midst of their slavery when no hope of that kind existed. What did they sing? In that great getting up morning, fare thee well. I'm a poor pilgrim of sorrow. I'm tossed in this wide world alone. No hope I have for tomorrow. I've started 
to heaven, my home. A band of angels coming after me, coming for to carry me home. Do you hear the difference? And I don't just mean that these are songs of groaning, they are, but they also contain hope, do they not? There is hope here, but it's a different kind. It rests upon something else. It's looking at something else. Honestly, it's much more like the hope that Peter speaks of. Hope of a far-off coming day, a day of Christ's return, or barring that, the release that will come with death. It's not a hope that trades on the near future, on promises of abolition and a better future for their children. Why not? Why didn't they sing those kinds of songs? Because there was no hope of that kind to be had. There's a lesson here for us. People who can work for justice now should. If there is short-term hope of change, then certainly there is a kingdom imperative that rests upon us to work for it. Nothing here today speaks against that. But you should understand there are... There are limits to that kind of hope. Do you remember President Obama? Yeah, of course you remember President Obama. Do you you remember his first campaign message, his first campaign? One word. Hope. When he ran again, he added another word. Change. Hope and change. Hope and change. And now it's, it's a decade later. How's it feel? Feels great. We have one in the room. Good. Now, I understand your response to a question like that is going to be different whether or not you're red, blue, or purple. But I think we all agree that the optimism of that moment didn't last for those who had it. You can lay the responsibility for that at the feet of whichever party you want, and you're only going to prove my point. All hope of that kind is prone to being undone by what? By the next election or the next stock market cycle or the next doctor's visit, the next conversation with your teenager. It's just a matter of time. There's always another shoe ready to drop. The reason Peter does not offer hurting Christians that sort of hope, oh, just hoping for a new emperor. Maybe they'll assassinate this one. It happened. The reason he doesn't offer that kind of hope is because, honestly, it's a bit flimsy. The reason African-American slaves did not sing about the possibility of liberation for their children was because there was no reason to think it would happen. Peter does not offer them hope for a new governor or a new political system because he had no reason to expect it. If your hopefulness in the world rests upon better politicians or better laws or a better economy or a better job or better relationships, guess what, my friends? You are setting yourself up for despair. Peter is not writing about optimism. The glass is half full. He is writing about hope. And that's something different. A living, lasting hope that survives and endures in the very midst of the unpredictable surges of human insanity. This is hope not for empowered people working for change, my friends. This this is hope for Peter, for people who have none. 
That's where it comes to us today. If you have it within your power to struggle against the brokenness of the world, by all means do so. Don't ever stop working for justice. And if that's where you are this morning, I have nothing to say against to you. Against you, carry on. I wish you well, but hang on to what I'm saying because about April, May, June, you're going to need what I'm telling you. I'm actually talking, Peter is actually talking to the rest of us. If you've reached a point, and I'm sure many of you have, where you are tempted to despair, either because you look at the news in our world and the problems just seem insoluble, or because of the smaller bondages and failures of your own life, and you just, you can't, you can't see a way forward. No hope of ever changing it. You're like C-3PO, right? We're just made to suffer. What is it with you? Could it be financially? The debt has finally hit the point where you're going to have to live to be 200 before you see green in the ledger. The despair of it. Is it relationally, that dysfunctional family or family member that you're just kind of stuck with? Really no hope of change that. Vocationally, that office full of dead ends and blind corners. Maybe it's the diagnosis. It's so unbeatable that even the doctors shake their heads when they think you're not looking. If that's you today, I have a word for you about Christian hope. I am not inviting you to put your hope in the possible promotion, the possible remission, the return of the prodigal, the requiting of the love interest, the restoration of the friendship or the marriage. If such things happen, praise God for them and steward them well. But sometimes in life, there is nothing to act against. There's no great deed to be done. The situations arise where the only virtuous thing you can do is endure. It is to you that Peter says there is something about the promise of heaven. There is something about the promise of Christ's return. There is something about the promise of the Christian end of the story that has broad enough shoulders to carry you through even the desperate thing you are facing. That's great. But what is that something? How does an escapist fantasy of a future world do anything about my unchangeable current circumstances. It's like that student in my office. What good is heaven in the face of what I'm dealing with, good or evil? What can the promise of heaven possibly offer that will make sense out of the procrustean bed of chaos in which I'm forced to sleep? Oh, it's a fair question. It's a good question. It may even be the right question. Anything like a complete answer to it would take a flock of sermons. But here in the twilight of this one, I want to draw your attention to one thing. One aspect of this promise that has helped me make sense of even some of the self-inflicted chaos of my own journey. I know not all of you will find it compelling, but there are some of you that need to hear it. 
And it is this. The power of this future hope is that it has the power to change the past. Yeah, I did say that. The power to change your past. C.S. Lewis. I'm proud of myself. I made it 30 whole minutes before citing C.S. Lewis. Sorry, I'll come back this way. C.S. Lewis, in his great little volume, one of the first ones he wrote, The Great Divorce, in this dream, he meets the shade of George MacDonald, who gives him uh, some thoughts about the real nature of Christian hope. Again, a lot of words here on the screen. Just pay attention to the bold ones. Both good and evil, when they are full-grown, become retrospective. They look backward. That is what mortals misunderstand. They will say of some temporal suffering, no future bliss can make up for it. Not knowing that, heaven, once attained, will work backwards and turn even that agony into a glory. And of some sinful pleasure, they'll say, let me have this and I'll take the consequences. Little dreaming how damnation too will spread back and back into their past and contaminate the pleasure of sin. Both processes begin even before death. The good man's past begins to change so that his forgiven sins and his remembered sorrows take on the quality of heaven. The bad man's past, of course, already conforms to his badness and is filled with dreariness. And that is why, at the end of all things, the blessed will say, we have never been anywhere but heaven. And the lost, ugh, we were always in hell. And both will speak truly. These may be some of the most important words ever written to persons like, like you and me. People who stagger, limping through life with wounds from which they cannot heal. Burdens which you cannot bear. Battles you cannot face or losses you cannot carry. What the promise of heaven actually says to us, once we put aside the silliness of golden harps and angelic wings, is that the final meaning of all of these events has not yet been written. See, God alone knows things as they are. We, poor tiny creatures, we only know things as they mean. And meanings change. Can you believe that the meaning of your past and your present has not been established? Oh, the events are what they are. They cannot be changed. That's true. But what they will mean, still up for grabs. And one day you shall, not may, 
This is not wish, wishful thinking. One day you shall, without a doubt, look back with certainty on 2019 with all of its joys or horrors and see that it was either the doorsteps of heaven or the threshold of hell. That is what it means to be a creature. This is what both heaven and hell will do to our earthly life. When you pull the car to the curb and your children pour out of the back seat, the whole meaning of the car ride changes retrospectively depending on whether they're standing in front of Michigan Adventure or the dentist's office. Yes? Yes. Heaven and hell are not merely our journey's end, but that which will determine finally what the journey meant. They will change the meaning of our past. Because, my friends, the past is not yet written. It's changeable. It changes all the time. You don't believe me? <laughs> Go try to watch an episode of The Cosby Show now with what you know. Different, isn't that? It's changed. But that's a bad example. That's a tragic example. Would you like to hear a good one? Thank oh, good. Because I'm going to give you one. Remember this guy? Wow. He's famous for something. In 2005, Tiger Woods won his fourth Masters title and by 2008 had won a total of 13 major championships. Solid contender for the GOAT of golf. And then, as you know, his life fell apart. How do you translate? Uh, well done. <laughs> Extramarital affairs, divorce, Arrest for substance abuse, conviction of reckless driving, followed by injuries, multiple surgeries. He should have been done. In every way and form, he should have been done. And yet, do you know what his 2019 consisted of? Do you know what happened to him this year? After 10 years of nothing? His fifth master's title. Which championship do you think means the most to him? Why? Don't draw the wrong lesson here. The point here is not about hard work. Yes, Tiger Woods, Tiger Woods worked his assets off trying to make good decisions after he made bad ones. It's a good, that is a good lesson. We too need to work as hard as we can against evil. That's true, but it's not the point here today. This is an illustration, and I want to be clear about its meaning. In Tiger Woods' own tiny little universe, can you see what standing on the green holding his fifth master's victory means after all of that failure that was his journey of the last 10 years? Can you imagine how it changes the meaning of those dark years? How it begins to redefine and reinterpret them? This isn't me. These are the newspapers. This is what they said about him. The man is who he is now because of them. Honestly, friends, this is just, this is just golf. 
The man walks around hitting a little ball with a stick for a living. A nice walk, ruined. If something of such ultimate significance has the power to undo in some small but meaningful way the sense of great sorrow that all of those suicidal choices meant to him, how much more will the glory of heaven overturn the sorrows of 2019? Neither Peter nor I are telling you to place your hope in the new year. We are not such fools. Truth is, you, you may have some hellacious paths to walk in 2020. I can't know that any more than Peter could promise a more benevolent emperor. The point is, to Christian hope, it makes no difference. I mean, it does in the sense that none of us enjoy pain. But nothing you have endured in 2019 or you dread in 2020 can in any way threaten the promise that you shall see these events in a different light. You will endure them and one day discover in them a meaning that gives life, that is life to you. The lesson of Christian hope is that it is not a hostage to circumstance. That longing that beats in your breast and has for as long as you can remember. For a world that is right, for that the world must have a meaning to it. My friend, it's not a mistake. It's not a distraction. It's not a trick of biology. It's actually a clue to the nature of the universe. It's a gift from your creator. Embrace it. Embrace the longing. Even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. It will teach you the meaning of Christian hope even give you joy in the midst of your struggles. Because whatever 2019 consisted of, whatever promises or threats 2020 offers, rejoice. Rejoice. Even, yes, in your pains. For one day, this too show itself to have been but the front steps of heaven. <sighs>